Right, let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your covenant faithfulness. We thank you for your demonstration of who you are through these Old Testament accounts. Thank you that you have preserved it for our learning, for our understanding, so that we can come to know you better, so that we can see your plan throughout history, and so that we can trust that just as you have been faithful in the past, you will continue to be faithful. We thank you for your examples of love as well. We thank you that you've demonstrated it in yourself and in your son, but also that we can see it demonstrated in certain individuals in history as well, those who have come to know you and who have meditated on your word and seen love demonstrated. So we do praise you for all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We're coming very close to finishing our quick trip through the life of Abraham. Uh, actually, in two weeks, we'll have been a year in Abraham's life. So it's not that quick, but covering 175 years is never a quick job. So I guess we covered 1,600 pretty quick in uh, Genesis 1 through 11. Well, here we come to the climax of our episode with finding the matriarch for the covenant seed line. This was the pinnacle of Moses' outline here in Genesis chapters 21 through 27. Everything from this point forward is going to follow from what has been accomplished in this chapter in going to Padan Aram and collecting a wife for Isaac for the next generation of the seed line in fulfillment of this promise that had been given to Abraham almost 70 years prior. Well, in this morning's message, we're actually breaking outside of Moses' outline. We're going to cover half of this uh, conversation in Mesopotamia between Laban and the servant, and then we are going to move into what is actually not a conversation, but an encounter between Rebekah and Isaac. Conversation will ensue between Rebekah and the servant, but you'll notice Isaac and Rebekah never say a word to each other in this entire account. And so before we get started, just to dip our feet in so we uh, are all on the same page as we move forward, we'll look at these characters that we see in this passage and see how we view them from this text. So God demonstrates his faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham to secure a matriarch for the next generation. There are a few places in scripture where God's name is conspicuously absent. For example, in the entire book of Esther, he's never once mentioned, but we see him working throughout the entire process. Now, God has been mentioned quite frequently in the earlier parts of this chapter, and at this point, his presence is so well established and determined that while we watch the unfolding of this episode, we know that he is undergirding the entire episode. It is in his sovereignty and in his, uh, in his providence that this marriage occurs. We see Rebecca presented as a collected, steady, and faithful character from the very beginning. Now keep that in mind as we go through that everything that Rebecca has done so far has been very calm and calculated. The only exception to that so far has been her rush to service, her speed in serving this servant and all of his camels. We see her break out of this cool, collected, uh, attitude only once more at the end of this episode. 
Isaac is presented as a godly, faithful steward of God's word and covenant promises. We'll open that up a bit more as we get there as well. And the servant completes his task with swiftness, humility, and joy. And you may have caught that one little verse, verse 66 in this passage, where once again, he retells the entire story. Thankfully, Moses summarized it in just one verse. But how many times at this point has this sermon or has this servant recounted all that God has done in his journey and how faithful God has been? The servant probably continued for the rest of his life to tell this story to anyone who would listen. He is so overjoyed by what he saw God doing. And then finally, we get to see the second instance in which love is mentioned in Scripture. The first time we saw it, it was mentioned as patriarchal love, the love of a father for a son. That becomes the paradigm for love, a demonstration to us of what true love is. And now we see love between two other humans in a different relationship. This is a matrimonial love. So biblical love here is shown as a comfort in the face of hardship. These verses break down pretty easily in two parts. First, we have their departure from Mesopotamia, in which they arrive back in Canaan. This is probably after about three years. It took him about, uh, probably about a year and a half to get there, and it would have taken him about a year and a half to get back. This is a long trek, 450 miles on foot through some rough terrain. Next, we will have the matrimonial encounter, and we'll open up what marriage looked like back in that day. But first, we have a delay in the plan. Now, a delay in a three-year journey of just about 10 days doesn't seem like much, but remember this servant's joy and his determination to return to his master. And so when they arose in the morning and the servant said, send me away to my master, he was probably rather disheartened when her brother, Rebecca's brother Laban, and her mother, Milka, said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say 10 Afterwards, she may go. Now, to me, the best example of what's going on here is an example from my own life and probably from yours as well. How often do you set your alarm for 6.30 and 6.40 and 6.50 and 7 o'clock and 7.02 and 7.04 and 7.05? Because you just want to get that last little minute of sleeping in. Just, just a minute more. Well, here is kind of what's going on in this episode. They want just a little bit more time, just a little bit more time with Rebecca. They don't want her to go quite yet. You'll remember in our last episode, after this servant recounted all that God had done, Laban clearly recognizes God's sovereignty in the issue. He says, the matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. He says, this is out of my hands. It's not my decision whether or not she goes with you. So here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Now notice Laban is not reneging on his, uh, his recognition of God's sovereignty over whether Rebecca will become the wife of Isaac or not, but he is relenting on the time. He wants to keep her a little longer. So while he is willing to recognize God's sovereignty in part of the issue, 
is not willing to see it in all of the issue. He's letting God determine the destiny, but he is determining the timing. And so on the same basis of God's sovereignty in this issue, the servant argues that he should be sent away immediately. He says, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. This was his argument in that very long recollection of all that God had done. The summary of it is God prospered my way because God guided this, because God has done this, and because God is leading. Do not delay me. So he says, send me away that I may go to my master. And now Laban and what is supposed to be Milka there said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Now notice in every instance we've had Abraham consulting God, the servant consulting God. We're going to see Isaac consulting God. Rebecca will see as we develop her story a bit later uh, in, a, in the next series in Genesis, that she is also one who consults God on occasion. Uh, all of these patriarchs and matriarchs consult him on occasion. But in this episode, Laban is painted as the unfaithful one, the one who, if he knows God, does not know him well, does not consult him, has to constantly be drawn back and have his thinking reframed by God's word. And so here, his good idea is, we'll let another person decide. We'll let Rebecca decide. Now, Rebecca's volition or her own will is tied up in this issue as well. She could decide not to go. She could decide to reject God's will on the matter and say no. The servant even made a condition for this when he spoke to Abraham and said, what if the girl refuses to come? Abraham says, then you're free of this oath. The servant's only responsibility is to bring the offer of marriage to the girl. Secondly, I can't remember my secondly, so we'll move on. We will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, simply, I will go. Remember, cool, calm, and collected. She doesn't have to haggle much about this. She also saw the providence of God in this situation, and she is ready to go. She's ready to follow this God that brought Abraham out of that land and blessed him. This reminds us of another character in Scripture. This reminds us of Ruth. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This was Ruth the Moabitess following Naomi back to the promised land, where Naomi was telling her essentially, stay here in Moab, find another husband, have a good life. And Ruth, under a different kind of love, a love for a mother-in-law here, chooses instead to follow her mother-in-law, to be faithful to this person to whom she's committed even following her into a foreign land, to a foreign God, and adopting all that is Naomi's. This is the kind of trust, the kind of hope, that Rebecca is operating under. This is cool, calm, and collected, and determined. And so they depart. 
they sent away their sister, Rebekah. Now notice, this is Laban and Milcah participating in sending her away. It wasn't that she ran away. It wasn't that she went against their will. But they had allowed her to make the decision, and she put the decision in God's hand and followed his will. And so, Laban and Milcah sent away the sister, Rebekah. Now this is the sister in relationship to Laban. Because remember, he is the primary giver in this uh, fratriarchal society where the brother gives the sister away. Rebecca did not go alone. She also went with her wet nurse. We know this is her wet nurse because she comes into the story a little more prominently later. Uh, and here we have her named in Genesis 35.8. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak, and it was named Alan Bekuth. So this is the nurse who went with Rebekah, and they went with Abraham's servant and his men. So we've got a little party of people traveling through the uh, Syrian wilderness here, back down to Canaan, the same route probably that Abraham and Sarah had first taken on a similar venture 70-some years prior. They, that is Laban and Rebekah's family, blessed Rebekah. And they said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Now there's a few things to be noticed about this blessing. First, we might note how similar it is to Noah's blessing of Japheth back in Genesis 9.27 where God blessed Japheth and said, May God, or where Noah blessed Japheth and said, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The enemies uh, in the land that she's going to will be the Canaanites. Remember in Genesis 4 7, when Sarah and Abraham entered into the land of Canaan and found it was already occupied, this land that God had promised to give them. We'll see that the Canaanites more and more become enemies of the Israelites living in the land. But also, we might note these two aspects of the covenant, that Laban is sending Rebekah away with this blessing, that she might become thousands of ten thousands, and that her descendants might possess the gates of those who hate them. Notice he's sending her away with the promise of land, and seed. He is not mentioning here the blessing. It was the blessing that had so enraptured him earlier. Remember he said, come in blessed of the Lord to the servant. This was literally the one whom Yahweh has blessed and the servant corrects his thinking and says, it's not me who has been blessed by God, it's my master who's been blessed by God. He is the one who is the recipient of this covenant and the servant receives the covenant through Abraham. And then he identifies why Laban sees him as being blessed. It's because he's materially rich. Yes, the Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. The idea here might be, big deal. The big thing is this. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age and he has given him all that he has. Now, Sarah is Laban's uncle. 
great uncle, great uncle, aunt. Sarah is Laban's great aunt. Laban would have known, at least from his father, if not having known Sarah himself, that Sarah was barren. We remember back in the episode before she left, Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Milcah was the father of Bethuel. Bethuel, the father of Rebekah and Laban. Milcah was the daughter of Haran, the other brother, and the father of Milcah and Ishka. And Sarah was barren. She had no child. We knew this before Sarah left that land. They knew that Sarah was barren. And now we see this God whom Abraham and Sarah left with the promise of land, seed, and blessing received this amazing gift that no man could have bestowed on them, which was life to a dead womb. Life from a woman who could not reproduce life. This was an amazing aspect of the blessing. And as we are going to see later, one aspect which Rebecca is going to need, because Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Rebekah didn't know it at the time. Neither did Laban, since if we remember, back when we first met Rebekah, she's a virgin and she has never known a man. They had no idea that she was barren. They had no idea just how much she would need the God into whose land she's going, into whose covenant people she's going, to become a part of this covenant promise that is not offered outside of this covenant family. You see, the blessing is promised to expand beyond the family of Abraham. But the land and the seed is not. And I think Laban came to understand this as he's sending away his sister because he makes no more mention of the blessing. He is sending her away into the two aspects of the covenant that she could only participate in by becoming party to the covenant, the land and the seed. And so he says to her, May our sister become thousands of ten thousands, and this will be only by the hand of God that she does. And may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. May they receive the land that God has promised to them. And then Rebekah arose with her maids. They mounted the camels and followed the man. Now notice the camels coming back into the story. Moses is a very good writer. He told us about these camels from the beginning that Laban, or not Laban, the servant, took 10 camels with him. These 10 camels are coming back, but they're, rather than bringing riches, they're bringing people. The riches stayed there in Padan Aram, and now they are bringing back an even greater wealth, the provision of God, in the matriarch for the seed line. The servant took Rebekah and departed. Now we get to meet Isaac. So far we've seen Isaac, but we haven't really seen him doing much. This is the first thing we are told of Isaac doing autonomously or on his own, apart from his father. And it's an important place to start in the life of Isaac. 
As Moses writes, now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahairoi, for he was living in the Negev, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. Now there's a lot of debate as to what exactly it means that Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahairoi. It probably means that he returned from a trip or returned from traveling down to Beer Lahairoi. We remember that this is about halfway to Egypt. Uh, between Shur and Kadesh. And did I put a map in here? I did. So down here in that pink circle, you see Bir Lahairoi right there above Mount Hor, and it's in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. He is coming from that area in the Sinai Peninsula back up to the Promised Land into the Negev where he lived. And so just as Rebecca is returning or coming down through a, from a trip, so Isaac is returning from a trip down south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. Now there's two things we'll pull out of this. First, what exactly does it mean that he was meditating? And in what field? Meditating we kind of take on a meaning in this uh, post-New Age world of some sort of Eastern religiosity. But that's not at all how Scripture identifies meditation. Meditation is most commonly found in the book of Psalms. For example, in Psalm 119, the psalm which the Sunday School went over last week, and it's a psalm all about the Word of God. Notice, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. We discussed this when we went through 1 John and through the summer series in spiritual life, that sanctification or growth in God does not come from working harder, but by knowing him better. It comes from meditating on his word, from knowing who he is and who we are in relationship to him. And this is exactly what we see in scripture as well. Remember back in Genesis 17, 1 through 2, when Abraham was 99 years old and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. God is telling Abraham that scary thing that we hear sometimes in the New Testament, to be perfect even as I am perfect. God is telling Abraham to be perfectly obedient here, to walk before him blamelessly. How does he do that? He meditates on God's word. And God continues here in this passage in Genesis 17 to give him his word, that he might hold it in his heart, that he might cherish it. When we come to the end of Abraham's activity, we get this summary from Abraham. He, Abraham, said to me, the servant, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to take your journey, to make your journey successful. Now notice what happened between Genesis 17 and Genesis 24. 
We had a few good things. We had him praying over uh, Lot in Sodom. But we also had him trading his wife for safety. That wasn't very faithful, was it? That wasn't blameless. But he did return to the Lord. He did trust the Lord. This covenant continued to remain the basis of his operation with the Lord, and it was when he lost sight of this covenant that he traded his wife for safety. It was when he didn't recognize or realize the importance of Sarah in God's promise, that God had promised life through her. It was God's word that holds him. Psalm 119.12 continues, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your statutes as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. The next part of the psalm, goes under the same cycle. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away my reproach and contempt from me, For I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. This is the position of one who is growing in God. Not reaching sinless perfection. That's a promise for the future. A promise for glory. When we are together with him in a perfect world. But he has delivered to us his word, his word which powerfully changes the way we think, the way we act, even the people that we are. And it's on this word that we find Isaac meditating. Meditation is never given to us in scripture with any other object. It's always meditation on the word of God. Even from the very beginning of the Psalms, we see how important meditating on the word of God is. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That's a a pure and blameless walk here. How does one do that? Nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted, fir- firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. This is an important principle to have the matriarch of the covenant involved in, one who is focused on this covenant, focused on the word of God. How much differently... May life had been in the garden, had Eve, rather than abandoning the word of God for the word of the serpent, meditated day and night 
on the word of God, on his interpretation of the world around, to see the world that he created through his eyes instead of making up a fanciful fiction to suit herself. God's word changes the heart and minds of sinners. So now we move to the next little bit. He was meditating in the field. Now, this doesn't say in a field, which we would expect it to say. Therefore, we're looking for some sort of antecedent. We're looking for the last time a field had been mentioned. Because if it is the field, it's a field that we know of. And the only field that we know of was the field where his mother was buried. The only possession they legally own in the land. Coming back from his trip down to Bir Lahairoi, it appears that he stopped by his mother's grave. And as he stopped there, he is meditating on God's promise. The hope of a wife. The hope of descendants. The hope of owning the rest of this land. Possessing the rest of this land. This was Genesis 23, so Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field, and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within the confines of its border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. Now, if we remember all the odd encounters between Abraham and Sarah, where we're wondering why does she live in Hebron and he lives in Beersheba, we might pull from that the, the well-attested fact that Sarah lived in Hebron. And it's into Sarah's tent that Isaac is going to bring Rebekah. Isaac was in Hebron. Isaac was at this field of Machpelah where his mother was buried. And it's here where he's meditating on the promise of God. And then he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, camels were coming. Now remember how God answered the servant's prayer as well. And how the servant told Laban that even before he had finished praying, Rebecca was walking towards him. Well, here as well, even as Isaac is meditating on the word of God, the covenant that God had delivered to him, God answers and God brings Rebecca. So he look, lifts up his eyes and looks and behold, camels are coming. And at the same time, Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. And she said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? Now notice she dismounts her camel first, and then she asks who he is. We'll come back to that at the end. But she wants to know who is this man? Why? Because she doesn't really expect to see him here. The servant left from Canaan, but probably from Beersheba because he was with Abraham. The servant has probably given Rebecca a little bit of an update along the way over 10 days out, we're two days out, we're one day out. But Rebecca here sees a man in this field, jumps off her camel, and asks the servant, who is he? And the servant says, he is my master. 
Now, every other time the servant has spoken of a master, he has spoken in reference to Abraham. This is the first time that we clearly have Isaac identified as his master. And we'll watch as this passage or this marriage progresses, we see Isaac replacing Abraham in his position in the covenant. And we see Rebekah replacing Sarah in her position in the covenant to be the next generation of this promise from God. Well, the next thing that occurs is the marriage between Rebekah and Isaac. And there's three things that we can note about patriarchal marriages. That is, marriages among the patriarchs, especially in Genesis. The three ingredients to these marriages is a covenant or mutual commitment, ceremony, public recognition, and Congress, physical union. The first thing that Rebecca does upon learning that this man is the one whom she is to marry took her veil and covered herself. This is the beginning of ceremony. Usually, Hebrew women did not walk around with veils over their faces. This is something that would especially happen during a marriage. For example, we might look forward into the text a bit to when Jacob marries Leah without knowing. How is it that he wouldn't know her face was covered? Because during the marriage ceremony, she would wear a veil. The servant then tells Isaac all the things that he had done. Now remember that this covenant is all about God's faithfulness in providing this wife for Isaac. He is recounting God's part in the deal. He is recounting God's covenant under which this marriage has been contracted and ordained. Both Isaac and Rebekah, having demonstrated already that they are faithful parties to this covenant, are coming under this covenant into marriage. And so Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebecca, that is a euphemism for Congress, which is also a euphemism. You're going to have to deal with euphemisms. She became his wife. And he loved her. Now this is also another word which we tend to wrest from the context of Scripture and pack full of all sorts of modern presuppositions and notions as to what love is and what love looks like. Love, biblically speaking, is commitment, the desire for the best for another. It's not so much infatuation. It's not at all infatuation, but infatuation is helpful, certainly. Passion is something that draws two people together, but passion is safe in the hands of commitment. It is not safe apart from it. We do have evidence that Rebecca was at least somewhat attracted to Isaac. Who knows, he might have been so repulsive that she fell off her camel. But doesn't that make the fact that she married him all the more emphatic in her commitment? But no, it appears that she fell off her camel because the word here is not no, the normal word for dismounted. Literally, the text says when she saw him, she fell off her camel. Now, 
I don't know how many of you maybe have kids or grandkids. For me, I have a sister. Yeah, my mom and brother get this. This was pretty much the picture that summed up my little sister's entire wedding. All of the speeches were about this moment in a movie where Mr. Darcy takes Elizabeth's hand, this woman who he secretly loves, and afterwards there's just a flinch of his hand that demonstrates that this man who keeps his emotions so bottled up actually does love this woman. My point in this is that Moses is a very, very good writer. Better than Jane Austen, better than Shakespeare. I prefer Shakespeare to Jane Austen. Hear my soul speak of the very instant that I saw you did my heart fly at your service. Or a better one that I like better from a midsummer night's summer night's dream. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Rebecca may have seen Isaac and been infatuated, but it wasn't until she heard that this is the one whom God has covenanted her with that she put on the veil, that she began that commitment to this husband. It would have been all for naught otherwise, but this is a different kind of love, one that the world doesn't know apart from God's demonstration of it. This is the difference between God's impersonal love and mankind's personal love. Now again, don't think of impersonal as a bad term as we think of it when we talk about a person who's not personable. This is impersonal in the sense that it doesn't depend on the attractiveness of the person, but on the sufficiency of the subject doing the loving. It does not demand the attractiveness of the object, but the integrity of the subject. And one thing we see about these two individuals, Rebecca and Isaac, is that their integrity, both of them, are firmly planted in God. Rebecca, this calm, cool, and collected woman who is willing to leave her country, her family, everything she knows, to follow the promises of this God even going to a marriage with a man she's never met. This was not Isaac-centric in her mind. This is God-centric, the God who has proved himself. And for Isaac, meditating in the field, considering the promises of God, wondering perhaps what kind of woman God is going to bring because he has no idea. But that wasn't what mattered. Impersonal love requires no acquaintance. Personal love requires personal acquaintance. This is how things like contracted marriages or set up marriages in the Old Testament worked. Because it wasn't what we deem somehow is so much better today that we get to know the person and under the worst possible advice, sometimes live with the person so you get to know them better. The idea here is to firmly entrench yourself in a love that is not godly, a personal love that is going to weigh and assess all of the good and the bad of the person and decide whether they're good enough for you or not. 
On the other hand, we have impersonal love. Love which is determined to commitment. Love which is that one specifically concerning God. Love that is unconditional rather than conditional. You see, if infatuation is the basis of your love for a person, then on your bad days, your basis is gone. Your foundation is eradicated. It is the most fickle kind of love you could ever experience. And this is nothing like the love that God demonstrates in his word. In fact, I didn't put the verses in, but the greatest demonstration of love in all of scripture, and if you guys have Bibles and you want to pull yours out, we're going to read through John or 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. How do you get to know God? You get to know him through his word. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested among us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Now remember the other kind of love that we have seen so far in scripture. The first demonstration of what love is, is the love of a father for his son. This love has nothing to do with infatuation. This love has everything to do with a commitment. To raise a child, to bring them up for their best. And trust me, I've been a son. I am a son. It's really hard to love a son sometimes. But that's not what makes love. It's not the ease or whether you like it or not. It's the commitment. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides among us and his love is perfected among us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Isaac and Rebekah have seen example of God's love. Not yet in the full example that God would give in his own son, in giving up his own son for the world. In fact, we all know that verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The first and primary example of love was forfeited, was sacrificed for his love for the world. He gave up his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is ultimately what the covenant leads to. The covenant leads to 
land restoration, yes. It leads to a kingdom for Israel, yes. But nested within this covenant is something so amazing because in order for God to restore creation, he has to restore the people in it. And there's only one way for him to do that, and that's for him to perfect his son, the author and finisher of our salvation, that when we enter into his body by grace through faith, we receive this life, we receive his righteousness. And this came from the greatest sacrifice that God could present because of the greatest love that the universe has ever seen. And it was all done for us. And then he puts this up as an example to us and says, learn this. See my love demonstrated. And know that you have been brought into this family. This truly is a family that loves. And so just as children grow up to imitate their parents, we grow up to imitate our father. Our Father who loves self-sacrificially. Our Father who loves not because the objects of his love are lovely, but because he is sufficient to love. And he is sufficient for us as well. As we love others, it should always be on the basis of God's love for them and God's love for us. So we finish with one more look at these characters before we leave them. We'll never leave God in this sense, but God demonstrates his faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham to secure a matriarch for the next generation. Rebecca is presented as a collected, steady, faithful character from the beginning, pretty much until she falls off her camel, literally head over heels. Isaac is presented as a godly, faithful steward of God's word and covenant promises. The servant completes his task with swiftness, humility, and joy. And biblical love is shown as a comfort in the face of hardship. Because what happens here? Isaac loves her, and that is commitment, not infatuation, and Isaac was comforted, here we see as a result of love, passion, not as the foundation of love. He was comforted after his mother's death. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we do thank you so much for your love, your love that has provided salvation in your Son for the whole world. We thank you that you have made it no merit of ours, which could bring us into this family, but through faith alone, which is not meritorious. We thank you that you have provided all that is necessary for life and godliness in your word. We thank you that you have given it to us so that we might meditate on it and come to know who you are, that you are love, and that you have demonstrated this in your Son. We do praise you for all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.